Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. So for the past several months, we have been going through this beautiful book of Romans. I am really excited for this time. We have uh, seen so much through Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 now. Uh, we've seen Paul explain the universal jurisdiction of the law, uh, the condemnation of man, and ultimately the need to be found righteous before God. We know that that is man's ultimate need, is to be found righteous before God. We also learned that the only means of being found righteous uh, or not being found guilty on judgment day is to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. This is key doctrine. Okay, We cannot stand on our own obedience. We cannot stand on our own merits. The only thing that is going to stand before God on judgment day is the righteousness of Christ that's given to you, imputed to you, clothed you through faith. And we no longer essentially trust in ourselves to be good, right? Children, we're not good. We're not good. We're sinners. We're good maybe compared to the next person, but we're certainly not good when we compare ourselves to the law of God. We break those Ten Commandments on a regular basis, and we need that righteousness, the alien righteousness of Christ who is good alone. In chapter 4, we saw... Paul defend this doctrine of justification by faith alone, by the evidence of the Old Testament. He used Abraham and talks about Genesis chapter 15, 6, that says, and Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness, showing that even in the Old Testament, people were saved the exact same way that they are saved in the New Testament. It was a different manifestation of the covenant of grace but it was still the same way or means of redemption. It's you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, Abraham was saved in the Christ to come, and we were saved in the Christ that came. And so we're on two different sides of the cross there. In chapter 5, we saw Paul go from the evidence of the justification by faith alone to the blessings and the results uh, of justification by faith alone. And he talked about the primary blessing is eternal peace with God. That is the ultimate blessing of being justified by faith, is that you have eternal peace with God. But Paul, again, anticipated the questions of why are we in need of peace with God? So he goes back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, and he talks about an exposition of how we are born in Adam and how we need to be reborn in Christ or how all of humanity has fallen by the sin of Adam as their representative, and that we need a new representative in Christ. And so the imputation of sin through Adam and the imputation of righteousness through Christ. And so today, in chapter 6, Paul transitions from the blessings received in justification by faith alone to the work accomplished by justification. So you need to see the transition here what we're really talking about is the work of sanctification. And essentially, God doesn't only justify you by faith, but that justification will manifest itself in sanctification. It must manifest itself in sanctification. Now, what does the word sanctification mean? Okay, it's basic. It's a very 
clean uh, definition. It means cleanse. Okay, you are cleansing yourself. Uh, that means if you would sanctify yourself, it means you would cleanse yourself. It means that God is cleansing you through the power of the Spirit. He is to clean you. S. Uh, Lewis Johnson once made a helpful distinction between justification and sanctification. He said, quote, justification is restoration to life while sanctification is restoration to health. And what he means by that is there is a renewal uh, that's occurring through sanctification. It's bringing you back to who you are supposed to be having not been ravaged by sin. Uh, Herman Bavink's axiom that he often said in all of his writings was, grace restores nature. That's what grace does. Grace restores nature. Now, it's a process of sanctification that that nature is restored, but it's grace is restoring our nature. And I believe, again, that's exactly what we see in sanctification. It's a restoration of our being. It's a restoration of our hearts and our souls. It's a process of making us holy and pure in a manner that was, in a sense, how we were prior to the fall of man. Now, we know that we're not going to be completely sanctified in this life, that our body must die and that it'll be resurrected. And when it is resurrected and glorified, it will be completely sanctified and it won't die anymore. It won't get sick anymore. But God is currently sanctifying our souls and our spirits and and which can, I believe, have a direct connection to your health. I think that people that live in sin tend to damage their bodies in a way, as we talked about even with just Evie's prayer request. And so there is certainly a connection there. And so the point that Paul is making in this chapter uh, is a saving or justifying relationship with God through Christ will change your relationship with sin. Okay, so your relationship with God through Christ will change your relationship with sin. Christ will not leave you as you are. He will not leave you as you are, but by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and by the power of his word, he will clean you. I think about Jacob and Esau. There was an old sermon from Paul Washer that talked about uh, the relationship of God to Jacob and to Esau. And the difference was, is that he let Esau go be Esau, but he did not let Jacob be Jacob. No, he continued to sanctify Jacob. And this is the evidence that he is Jacob's father. And this is important because discipline and sanctification and the work of God in your life is evidence that you are a child of God. And so when we get sanctified and when we get cleaned and we get cleansed and when we get disciplined, it is a good thing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, he says in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So again, there is an immediate sanctification when you're born again. Uh, there is also an ongoing form of sanctification after you're born again. And so the immediate has to do with our identity. You are no longer a homosexual. 
You are no longer a drunkard. You are no longer an idolater. You are now a saint. That's there is an immediate that deals with the identity. And then there's this ongoing work of sanctification in our hearts that deals with our behavior and our affections and the things that we love and the things that we like to do. And there's a common saying that says, Christ doesn't just change what you do, he changes what you want to do. There's also kind of a twist on that that I wrote out. It says that Christ doesn't just change who you are, but who you want to be. And you don't want to be these manifestations of the flesh that you might have had before Christ. No, he changes your affections and you want to do the will of God. That's the evidence that you are a saved individual. So let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 6, 1 through 2. These are going to be the main verses that we sit with today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, let's go to verse one here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue that sin or continue in sin that grace may abound? So you have to understand context, right? It's important. We can't just take passages of scripture and read them without the relationship of the sentences that are before and after them. We want to know what Paul is saying here and its connection to the previous context. And so we have these chapters in our Bibles, but Paul's not writing, oh, I just finished chapter five. Now it's going to be chapter six. No, this is all one thought here. And we have imposed these chapter sections that might be a convenient break in the text. So he's coming off the heels of chapter five, where Paul presents the superiority of Christ over Adam, the fallenness of Adam and the eternal peace that we receive, the forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness, again, all that we talked about in chapter five. But he asks this rhetorical question. It's a question with an obvious answer. And again, I want you guys to look back to chapter five for a second and just look at the last two verses. And I'm going to read them out loud for you. It says, the law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also would, uh, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on in chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So now you get the context. He's talking about grace abounding through Christ beyond the fallenness of Adam. And then he's going, hey, by the way, should we keep on sinning just that grace may abound? Because grace is abounding. We see that at the end of chapter five. And essentially what Paul's trying to get across here in light of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone and all the benefits that come with it and the grace of God in Christ that exceeds over the power of sin, should we as Christians take advantage of the fact that sin has no longer a condemning power over us and just sin freely? That's the question. And don't think that it's a crazy idea because probably every one of us have sat there and going, I'm going to sin right now and I'm going to still be forgiven for it. I mean, if you had any life post the cross, you fall into that sin of abusing grace, knowing that you will be forgiven for the sin you're about to commit. It's a wicked thought. It's a wicked thought. And the answer in verse two gives us The power, actually in the Greek, it's used as in a very emphatic tone. It says, no way, or certainly not, is what your passage 
or translation might say. Paul is confronting a particular heresy that still very much exists today. Uh, Some of it's called neo-Calvinism. I am a Calvinist. I believe in the doctrines of grace, but the neo-Calvinism is this idea of antinomianism. You need to know that word antinomian or antinomianism. And it's the idea of essentially abusing grace. And some of the new Calvinists say you're saved, therefore you can have freedom in many of these things without condemnation. And again, there's, it's a convoluted mess of theology that is not true to the doctrines preached here in, first, or in uh, Romans chapter 6. So we have two ditches on the gospel road, and I'm going to talk about that. Uh, you have legalism as one ditch, and you have licentiousness as the other ditch. Two sides that are both heresy. So legalism is bringing back people under the law and having them believe that their obedience somehow contributes to their justification or maintaining their salvation. Now, licentiousness on the other side is having license uh, to abuse grace by disregarding the law and walking freely in sin because justification has eliminated our condemnation. And so there's two ditches, right? You can be licentious and just kind of walk in total grace and believe that there is no value in following the law of God, or you can actually put the law of God as a burden on people, making them follow it in a way that actually goes beyond the text. And so we see both of these very common in the American church, very common. And the definition of antinomianism, so uh, anti means to be opposed, Namas in the Greek is uh, law, and so you have anti-law, so you're opposed to the law, antinomianism. That's what that means. It's being opposed to the law. R.C. Sproul once said, quote, the antinomian heresy is the view that the law of God revealed in the Old Testament has nothing to do with the New Testament church, that the New Testament church is a church without the law, a church that lives and breathes exclusively on the basis of grace. But the New Testament is far from abolishing God's moral law. Jesus calls his disciples to obedience regularly. He says, quote, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, John 14, 15, end quote. And so what Paul wants us to understand here is that while the law no longer has a condemning power over the person that's been justified by faith in Christ, the law still serves as the standard of God's righteousness and his desire for our lives and for the world. That is still the standard. In fact, while obedience to the law does not justify you, it does please God. And so it pleases God when you aim for the perfection of the law. I'm talking of the moral law here. Because what essentially is happening here is that this form of sanctification is that God wants to make us more like Christ. And you know who Christ is? He's the perfect law keeper. He keeps the law perfectly. And so we need to be like Christ in that way. Now we know that we we fail, certainly, that we are justified by our faith and the righteousness of Christ given to us, but we are still called to please God by having no idols and no other gods and by keeping the Sabbath and by not committing adultery and by not lying and bearing false witness, all of these things are important 
And we should be striving for those things because they please God. We cannot forget the teaching of Psalm 1. What does it say? Of the blessed man, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David loved the law. I mean, the question is, do you love the law? If you did, you should really try to make sure that society is conformed to that law. Because I'll tell you what, a great way to love your neighbor is to make sure that the moral law of God is the standard of righteousness for this city and for this country. And so a great way to moral, or a great way to love your neighbor is to make sure that it's illegal that you can, or make sure it's illegal to kill your baby. That's a great way to love your neighbor, to make sure that the sixth commandment is standing firm in society. And so again, this is why it's important for us to recognize that the moral law of God is the standard of righteousness for the world. And actually, society runs best when it's operating off of the Ten Commandments, the biblical law. So Paul then asks another important question. says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? As I taught in chapter 5 in Scripture, death is separation. You cannot forget that. Death in Scripture is separation. And life is union. Life is union. Death is separation. So when Paul asks, How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's really asking, how can we who have been separated from the power of sin still live as if it's our ruler? Like, how can you live like that? If you've been separated from the power of sin, the reign of sin in your life, how can you still live in a way as if it's ruling over you and your affections? You see, we were alive to sin prior to Christ, and dead to God. Now we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Do you understand those connections, making it there? Actually, one day I want to write a book called Alive in Christ, showing this doctrine of union. This is what it's all about. The doctrine of union was actually one of the biggest turning points for me understanding the doctrines of grace. When we realize that we are separated, we are spiritually dead, and in order to be made alive, we need to be born again, and we're brought into union with God, this is essential, basic doctrine that the church has missed in a great degree. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead. And where's the location of that deadness? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Colossians 2.13 says, Again, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Romans 6, 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 sums up this whole idea, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, it's this deadness and union, right? Death and alive. And so, now this, again, this doesn't mean that because we're separated from sin doesn't mean that we don't sin. We certainly do sin. We are saints who sin. Uh, I believe it was Thomas Watson who said, uh, while sin remains in the born-again Christian, sin does not reign in the born-again Christian. So you will have sin remaining in your life. And Lord willing, that'll be decreasing as the Lord sanctifies you. 
But sin will no longer reign. It will not rule you in the way that it did when you were alive to sin and dead to God. And so I think this gets to the heart of the passage. Paul is saying that those who have truly been taken out of Adam and brought into union with Christ are not going to live lives that are ruled by sin. Now, children, this is important for you guys to grasp as well because you will also be seeing this in your own degree of maturity. I don't expect the same degree of maturity in Matthew that I do from Joseph, but I do expect to see in every one of us that we are dying to sin and that Arya is becoming more holy and that Valor in his own six-year-old way is becoming more holy and that Joseph in his you know, mid-30s way is becoming more holy. And what's appropriate for the journey that he has been put on. And so I want you to take note that Paul does not command us to die to sin, but he tells us that we've already died to sin. Like we're already disconnected from it. There is no power. I've often found people through biblical counseling and pastoral counseling that I'll work with these individuals who are addicted to, you know, alcohol or pornography or something else that's ruling their lives. And I pretty quickly realized that this individual may or may not be regenerate. They may or not, may or may not, I can't tell the very beginning, are they just having a backsliding moment? Are they just having a struggle? Or have they actually not been born again yet? Because when sin dominates you, you can't stop. And you just continue to sin willfully and addictively, that's a really terrible sign for someone who calls themselves a Christian. And so I try to work through these individuals, the gospel, making sure that they really comprehend the gospel, thinking that it's possible that they might not actually be born again. And I often remind people that are struggling with these things in America. We have lots of people who came to church that never came to Christ. Lots of people who think they're saved, and in reality, they're not born again. And that is actually the thing that is holding them back from able to, being able to conquer these addictive, habitual, ongoing, dominating sins. They need regeneration. Again, it's a fine pastoral discernment to figure out which individuals are struggling with that and which aren't. But you need to know that when you're having a six-month struggle with a brother or sister in Christ with some sort of addictive sin, it might not be that they need to know more about how to stop. It might actually be that they need to be made new. You know, and that's the reality is that it's, we sometimes get stuck on telling people to be better when they need to be new. And they're not a new creation yet because they were in some American church that never talked about sin and never actually called for repentance and never understood that they were unrighteous and that they needed the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so it's important that you understand those distinctions. And so what Paul is demonstrating here is he's going, hey, how can we who have already died to sin live in it? So he's, he's demonstrating, and here's the catch, incompatibility. Okay, he's demonstrating incompatibility. How can we who are die, who have died to sin still live in it? Those are two opposite concepts. 
Okay, he's showing if you're dead to sin, your relationship with, with sin should be one of conflict, not cooperation. Okay, so you need to figure out what's going on. And again, that's what you, when you're dealing with a brother or sister or yourself, why am I in cooperation with the sin? I should be in conflict with the sin. And again, we are saints who sin and we might have a short stumble and fall and hit our head on the floor. Doesn't mean that we're not regenerate. I don't want to cast doubt upon your own salvation. But when you have, again, months long, maybe even years long battles that are not being overcome, it's worth the examination. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, as Paul says. So 1 John 3, 6 through 9, we read this earlier in our worship service, talks about this incompatibility between the reign of sin and the born-again believer. I'm going to read it again. Pay attention. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning who has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous and he is righteous or as he is righteous. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, this text is the text I use when I try to help brothers and sisters break free from addictive sin. When I talk to a a man that's maybe dealing with pornography or alcoholism, practicing sin means you're getting better at it. People will say, well, I hate it. And I go, well, no, you hate the way it makes you feel, but you actually love the sin because we don't keep doing things that we don't like. I don't like putting my hand on the stove because it hurts. Therefore, I don't go and keep doing it, right? We don't do things that hurt us. Now, sin is deceptive, right? It gets us in there and we think that we like it and then we realize, oh, this is in conflict. But when you think about this is practicing sin means that we are trying to get better at it. Now, when it comes to sin, you have to think about it differently. It means that we might get better at it in other ways. Like we might get better at hiding it. We might get better at justifying it. Uh, We might get better at doing it, at finding the right locations and the right alcohol or right drug dealer or whatever it may be. That's what it means to continue to practice sin. It means that you're actually getting better at it. You're improving at your ability to justify it. And people that do so should be fearful should be afraid because this is not evidence that you are a born-again believer. Yes, again, we all sin. But when you have patternistic, ongoing, burdensome, dominating, sin-like characteristics in your life, it should cause you fear and trembling before the Lord. And what John is teaching here in this section is that if a person professes Christ but relates to sin in such a way that it rules them, or reigns over them, then they might be alive to sin and dead to God. And when you have been transferred from the realm of sin to the realm of righteousness, your highest desire is no longer dominated by sin, but dominated by Christ. And I want you guys to pay attention here because 
we're gonna do a little bit of philosophy just for a second because I want you to see the phrase that I just used, your highest desire. Okay, your highest desire. When I say your highest desire, that's a great way to identify or define your will, okay? Your will is no longer enslaved to the flesh, but it's enslaved to the Spirit of God. We're slaves of Christ. The word doulos is the Greek word for slave. Unfortunately, some of the translations uh, make the word servant, but that is not what it meant then. It is certainly the word slave, and it's the most used term to describe Christians in the New Testament. You are a slave to Christ. And this is why I often tell people, you have a will, but it's never free. It's either enslaved to sin or enslaved to Christ. The idea of a free will is not a biblical idea. Jonathan Edwards' work and Martin Luther's work, the freedom of the will or bondage of the will, you, you must read these things to really dive in to recognize that we don't have a free will. We have a will. And prior to Christ, it is enslaved to sin. Our highest desire is to serve self. Now, yeah, sure, you might walk grandma across the street and you might donate to the charity, uh, but you're doing that for your own selfish, self-righteous reasons. It's not done to the glory of Christ. And anything that's not done in faith is sin. And so everything that you do is sinful because it's not done to the glory of Christ. You have no desire to serve Christ because your will is enslaved to sin because you're alive to sin and you're dead to God. And the only way that transition can change is through the Holy Spirit coming in and changing your heart. And that's why regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration must come first and save you and wake you up, give you faith, and then you exercise that work. It's an amazing truth and you start to realize that I didn't choose God, but God chose me. And so, as we all know, Christians do not always obey their highest desire, even when we have the Holy Spirit and we're slaves to Christ. We still live in the flesh. There's a war going on between the flesh and between the Spirit. Paul's talking about this flesh. Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And this is the action that Paul so adamantly questions. As a person who has experienced regeneration and understood the cost of your sin, how could you turn back? How could you turn back to the very thing that crucified Christ for you? How could you keep sinning? It's because you just forgot what Christ did for you. The born-again believer, and I'm going to get ready to close here in a second, the born-again believer hates sin. You hate sin. You might fall again here or there, or you might be ignorant of it because of your own self-love, but when faced with the clarity of sin, you look at it and you hate it. You look at it and you hate it. And the question becomes for you guys here. Do you hate sin? Children, think about this. Do you hate sin? Ask yourself about that. Do you hate sin? Do you hate what it's done to your life? Sin never delivers goodness. Every bad thing that has ever happened in your life is a result of either the sin fallenness of this world or committed acts of sin. Sin is our enemy. We should be feeling the sting as Christians. We should be feeling the sting of guilt and shame when we commit acts of sin. That is the grace of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives, 
When you sin, you should have that bite on your heart that goes, oh, I'm so dumb. Lord, why did I do that? That is the evidence that you're saved. So ask yourself, turn to prayer, examine yourself. Do you hate sin? Proverbs 8 to 13 says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Sin is our enemy. It's the very thing that hurts our relationships and our bodies and our minds. And therefore, what I want to say to you is act as one who is dead to sin, one who is separated from its dominating power in your life, one who has no inclination or interest in disobeying God. Run from it, pray against it, ask God to sanctify you of any lingering desire for sin. That is the will of God. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.